people come to see me in my therapy office, they come for one reason. They're in pain. Or they might put it another way. I'm not happy. When couples come to see me, they have one unified goal. A happy marriage. Same with families. A happy family. Is this the right goal? Rumi said, Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself against it. Welcome to the Vanessa Londino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Londino. Psychobabble and pop psychology won't help us heal and grow. Real information will. And so I make it my goal each and every week to bring you real, down-to-earth, pertinent information on your mental-emotional health so that you can use it for the week ahead. Today we're going to look at this question. What causes unhappiness? A lack of happiness takes many forms. We may feel emotional disturbances like feelings of depression or anxiety. And if it's depression, then of course we feel sad or dragging ourselves through life. We may not have a lot of motivation. We don't find enjoyment, maybe any at all, in the things that might have previously brought us joy. And speaking of joy, we can't find it. Wherever we look for it, nothing is satisfying us. If it's anxiety, we're nervous, we're tense, we can't relax. We're constantly planning and thinking ahead. We struggle with simply being in the moment. There's always something hanging over our heads, some worry, some fear of the future, something that could happen. Maybe there's a feeling of emptiness. We may wonder who we are. By the way, this is a great question. We may feel like we don't know ourselves. We may feel robotic, like we're going through the motions, but we don't know why. There may be a gnawing feeling deep inside us that wonders, Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What is my life's purpose? Maybe we have feelings of inadequacy. Nothing we ever do is enough. We're chasing something. Maybe there's a constant stream in our minds of criticism. This goes wrong and that goes wrong and this person does this and this person does that. And usually that's the result of internalized self-criticism. Maybe we fall into the comparison trap and we always come up wanting. We're inadequate. We're never as good, never as beautiful, never as successful or popular as so-and-so. So we feel good about ourselves momentarily, but then we fall right back into feelings of inadequacy. Maybe we're chasing something. Something that will take the unhappiness away and put happiness in its place. Maybe it's a lifestyle. We want a shiny new car. We want two vacations a year, the country house, the city house, the beach house, the new add-on, the pool, the country club membership, whatever it is. We're chasing a lifestyle. Maybe we're chasing a partner, the perfect counterpart, the right match, our other half, someone to take the loneliness away. Maybe we're chasing money. Maybe we really think, we really believe that if we have more money, we'll have more happiness. Well, money can give us freedom, right? And freedom can bring happiness. There's some truth to that. But with more money generally comes more pricey expenditures and more stress. The only time money really brings more freedom is if we're living well below our means. You know what I mean? We've heard it a million times. Money can't buy happiness. Maybe you've heard the current iteration. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy everything else. So we chase money. Maybe we're chasing status. We think that popularity will bring us happiness. We really believe this. We believe that being well-liked, being well-known for something good, maybe we're known for our brains, our good works, our good deeds. 
Maybe our parenting, our fabulous parties, our charitable work, our charitable donations. We really believe that being known for something good will make us happy. So what others think of us becomes what we think of ourselves. So we seek and pursue and chase good favor because only then can we give it to ourselves. The thinking goes something like this. I approve of me when so-and-so approves of me. And we think this will bring us happiness. Maybe we're chasing success. We want to prove to ourselves that we have what it takes. We want to prove to everyone else, same thing, that we have what it takes. We want the accolades, the reputation. We want respect for what we've worked for and built. Now, I have counseled every socioeconomic status, and I can tell you without doubt, without question, and I'm not lying to you, unhappiness is universal. And for those who understand it, happiness is too. I've said this a lot. Everybody's got the same problems. They just have them in different houses. I've heard of outrageous misery on vacations in Aspen and camping. I've counseled deep depression and loneliness in people who are unemployed and seasoned professionals and executives. I have observed couples at war with one another in apartments and 6,000-square-foot homes with four-car garages. I've worked through addiction with clients who work blue-collar jobs and multi-millionaires. Same problems, different houses. But these are the things we chase. We're in the pursuit of happiness. What else causes unhappiness? And here's the big one. Troubled relationships. There's conflict. There's fighting. There's coldness instead of warmth. There's boredom instead of interest. There's distance instead of closeness. This may be with our spouse, our parents, our children, our friends. And what's the outcome? We feel lonely. And loneliness is one of the biggest contributors to unhappiness. In fact, I'd say it's the biggest one. Now, why are you making that claim, Vanessa, that loneliness is the biggest contributor to unhappiness? Well, first, every psychological study on this shows that our happiness in life is not determined by wealth, status, success, or any of the above, but by the quality of our relationships. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Every psychological study shows this, that the greatest markers of satisfaction in life are not our wealth, our status, our success, our achievements, but the quality of our relationships. An interesting study was recently conducted in Germany in which the researchers observed between five and 6,000 people over a year. So it was a year-long study. All of the participants in the study received a questionnaire at the outset about their satisfaction in life, and then the groups were observed further in subgroups according to how they wanted to improve their satisfaction in life. Okay, so big study, five to 6,000 participants, big questions. Are you satisfied in your life? If you are, how do you want to improve that? If you're not, how do you want to improve that? The findings showed that the people who had a strategy a workable strategy, a task-oriented strategy of improving their happiness were more satisfied at the end of the year than those who didn't. So this means they were actually doing things to improve their lives. They weren't just waiting around, passively waiting. You know, there's a song that says waiting on the world to change, and it drives me nuts because it's too passive. We can't wait. We need to take action. Now, even further, the people who chose to strategically invest in their relationships showed the greatest gain in life satisfaction than the others who chose other goals. 
Friends, I know I've said every study, and I'm sure if you got really, really brainy and nerdy out there, you could prove me wrong. No, no, Vanessa, there's one study out of, you know, Guam or someplace else from, you know, 1983 that says that satisfying relationships do not contribute to happiness on the greatest scale. I'm sure it exists, but I'm here to tell you the field is largely in agreement that the marker of satisfaction in life are satisfying relationships. And there are simply too many studies to cite. That's the bottom line. Satisfying relationships are what contribute to overall satisfaction in life, hence happiness. Now, second, we all know these people. We know people who have it all. Uh, You know, they've got the money, the cars, the boats, the houses, this or that. They just what? They just want someone to share it with, right? The grandest of homes, the most exotic vacations take on more meaning when they're shared. That inner world, you know, we're on a search for the meaning and purpose of life. We want someone on the journey with us, don't we? We want to talk about it. Even the most introverted introvert needs an honest relationship, maybe just one, where they can be seen and known and loved for who they are. So what did Rumi mean when he wrote about there being barriers within us that stand against love? All right, let's dive in. I know that's a longer intro than usual. Here we go. We're going to talk about love as the conduit of satisfying relationships because this is actually what they're built on and what sustains them. Okay, if you want more information about that, listen to the episodes on the episode stack called Love Matters Part 1 and Love Matters Part 2. But today we're going to talk about, we're going to use this language from Rumi around love. What barriers stand within me, within you, Barriers that stand against love and therefore barring us from more satisfying relationships. Let's skip to the end of the book, okay? The number one barrier is ego. It's ego, friends. Now, what is the ego? The ego is the energy within us that protects and maintains the false self. I'm going to say that again. It's important. Okay, the ego is the energy within us that protects and maintains the false self. Now, the false self are the parts of us that emerge born out of trauma, born out of a need for approval, born out of a need to please. It's not really who we are. It's not really what we think and feel. It's the us that becomes who we show the world in order to belong. So if our false self was built on money, Status and wealth, what does that mean? It means that the parts of us that are not authentic emerged and they chase these things because they think these things will win us approval and belonging in society. If our false self was built on those things, the ego is the energy within us that wants to be more successful, wealthier than others. So we sit back in smug satisfaction when we reach our goals and we're satisfied with ourselves. We're not necessarily grateful. The ego won't let us fully celebrate the victory of others. In this case, the ego won't let us stop and rest. Success is too important. Status is too important. The ego won't let us be humble. And we may live with huge pride. And underneath that pride is huge shame. If our false self was built on beauty and beautiful things... Our wardrobe, our bodies, our home, our vacation home, our ego is going to drive us to compare and compete with other people with the hope 
of being the best, the most beautiful, the most curated, the most impressive. And we will go to great lengths with surgery, procedures, money spent on furnishing and clothes and accessories and shoes and stuff, 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 stuff. And we don't feel confident if our life isn't put together. The ego in this case won't let us be our natural selves. The ego won't let us love ourselves unconditionally. And the ego won't let us be present if we feel we aren't perfect. If our false self was built on intellect... Okay, we thought we would protect ourselves and form a personality with how smart we are, how many answers we have, how quick we are to the draw of our intellect. Then our ego is going to drive us to prove to ourselves and everyone else that we're the smartest, the brightest, and nothing gets past us. So in this case, our ego won't let us admit when we're wrong. Our ego doesn't let us say, I don't know. Our ego doesn't easily let anyone have the upper hand. We have to have it. If our false self was built on success, the ego will demand that we work harder, achieve more, and make sure everyone knows about it, even subtly. Our ego won't let us rest contentedly. Our ego can't say it's enough. Our ego won't stop for anyone or anything if they stand in the way of our achievements. If our false self was built on the idea of being a good person, and I need to do a podcast on the fallacy of that ideal, that does not exist. We are all a mixture of things. Remember last week, you're not crazy. You're all the parts, right? But we use this phrase, oh, so-and-so is a good person. Pete's a good person. Jacqueline's a good person. But if that's the false self... Meaning, if those are the only parts of us that we show, then the ego is going to be working really hard to make sure that we always appear good, selfless, right, moral, pure-hearted, and kind. And aside from being saccharine sweet and probably a little bit boring, this is not possible. This is not a real person. So the ego in this case won't let us set boundaries and risk being perceived as selfish. The ego won't let us admit when we are in fact selfish, when our motives are mixed, when we're being manipulative, when they aren't as pure as the wind-driven snow. The ego will hide our shadow from us. It won't let us descend to the level of others. We are righteously fixed in our ivory tower. If our false self was built on staying small, quiet, and out of danger, the ego will fight hard to keep us in the role of always agreeable, well-liked, and not offensive. The ego will not let us take a stand. The ego will not let us make waves by asserting ourselves, and it will rationalize why staying small and staying quiet is best. Now, Vanessa, why in the world are you spending this much time on ego Because notice, my friends, how in each of these situations, when we are in our egos, we're not too aware of the people in front of us in terms of seeing them as human beings. We are more concerned with how they see us. And what does this create? Disconnection. Ding, 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 ding. Here it is. The false self is created out of self-protection. Okay, the false self is the sum total of the parts of us that arise in different scenarios in life to get us what we need, which is to be accepted, approved of, and belong. Now, in a perfect world, we would all experience unconditional love all the time. Unconditional love would allow our true selves to be and to be all that we are. 
this is not a perfect world. Even the most loving conditions contain elements that force us to edit, change, and alter who we really are to be accepted, approved of, and belong. The result of the false self is obviously a disconnection from the true self. And this disconnection from the true self means we're relating from a false self with other people, which means we aren't truly relating. We're not connecting. So we feel what? Disconnection. When people meet and bond in the space of the true self, their bond is secure because it's built on truth and authenticity. But when people meet and bond in the space of the false self, their bond is dependent on both people remaining in those dysfunctional spaces. We can't really connect. We might feel connected. We might even feel in love. But the connection isn't rooted in the authentic self. So when one or the other person starts to grow, if both partners in the relationship, this could be a marriage, a romantic partnership, a parent-child relationship, a friendship, when one or the other person starts to do some work, they're becoming their true self. They're growing. If the other person doesn't do their own work, the relationship becomes strained and only works on the level of the false self. And what is the result? Disconnection. So this brings us to the title of the podcast today, Connected, Not Happy. We want to be connected, not just happy. Wait a minute, Vanessa, are you saying it's wrong to want to be happy? No, I'm not. Happiness is great. But the pursuit of happiness doesn't make us happy. Frankly, I think it exhausts us. Connection does. I would love to hear people come into therapy and say, I want a connected relationship with my husband. I want better connection with my wife. I want better connection with my kids. But I often hear, I just want to be happy. I want a happy marriage. I want a happy family. Folks, happiness is an outcome of connection. We're shooting for the goal and neglecting the process. The word happiness comes from the Middle English root, hap, which literally means luck or chance. It's the same root from which we get the words haphazard and happenstance. So it's come to mean, in modern American English, glad or content. However, it seems to be a word that indicates a result, not a process. The process of happiness is connection. The process of happiness is connection. I'm yelling into the microphone because I want us to get it. I want you to be happy. But you can't be happy if you're disconnected from yourself and you can't connect to other people if you're not connected to yourself. So, Vanessa, how do we get connected? Well, you know me. A little bit. If this is your first time listening to me, you're learning me. But for those of you who have been listening this whole time, you know me. The first place we look for connection is where? ourselves. The work starts with us. So last week we talked about our many parts, right? The quality of connection to ourselves will largely determine our interior happiness. So let me ask you, do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? Do you like parts of yourself and dislike other parts? Do you love yourself and hate other parts? Can you feel your feelings? Can you feel your feelings without judging yourself? Can you accept yourself? Can you accept your feelings? Are you grateful for yourself? Are you grateful for the life you've had, the good, the bad, the ugly? Do you notice what you fixate on? What gets your attention? What generates stress or peace for you? 
Do you notice what you notice? How well do you really know yourself and why you do what you do? How much time do you spend with yourself? Do you enjoy your own company? Can you soothe yourself when your emotions run hot? Do you know how? Do you know what soothes you? Can you explain yourself accurately? Can you explain what you feel, what you need? Do you play small? Do you play big? Or do you avoid questions like this altogether? Because if you avoid them in yourself, in other words, if you avoid self-connection, you're going to avoid intimacy with others. Friends, we can't have it both ways. We can't have deep, satisfying relationships with other people and not have a deep, knowing relationship with ourselves. And if we can't connect with ourselves and we can't connect with other people, that's going to affect our happiness, right? So next we look at our relationships. We look at the self first, then the relationship, the level of satisfaction in our relationships. Satisfying relationships are available. This means that the person with whom you're in relationship is as invested in you as you are in them. Overall, there's a shared sense of enthusiasm about connecting with one another. Satisfying relationships are honest. This means that the person you're relating with can handle the real you, the authentic you. It means you don't edit. You don't have to. Satisfying relationships are loyal. This means the commitment to the relationship is strong and steady amidst the challenges of life and periods of connection and disconnection. Satisfying relationships are mature. This means the relationship is emotionally honest. Say it again, Vanessa. You want me to say it, Jersey Blunt? Fine. Mature. This means you can talk about your feelings. All right? You can talk honestly about your emotions. A mature relationship is a relationship in which we can say how we truly feel about anything, including the relationship. Some of us are fantastic listeners until it's about us. Then we get defensive, we shut down, we're not available. But a mature relationship, which is a very high quality relationship, is a relationship in which both people, or even more if there's family systems, everyone in the relationship can express how they feel without acting out their emotions in ways that damage the bond. In satisfying relationships, there's room for differences. Unity, which is uniting, coming together around shared values, is valued over conformity, which means sameness. In satisfying relationships, in healthy family systems, we're curious about, we celebrate differences rather than shaming one another for them. Satisfying relationships are mutually celebratory. What does that mean? It means we can share our struggles with one another, but we can also share our wins. And I'm going to say this because it's very important. Be very, very wary of people who are not enthusiastic about your successes, but rush to be available when you fall. This is someone who needs you to be weak. Healthy relationships celebrate one another. We celebrate it when we win. Satisfying relationships are safe. This means that there's an environment of non-reactivity. It means we test the level of trust in the relationship by really opening up and we're consistently, maybe not always because nobody's perfect, but consistently we're met with acceptance, compassion, understanding, and belonging. In safe relationships, we always belong, no matter what. 
Struggles are met with openness and a willingness to talk it out and compromise if needed. Everyone has a voice and every voice has value. This is safety. Now, let's compare this with unsatisfying relationships. The qualities of unsatisfying relationships are they're shallow. We can't be deep. We can't be authentic. We can't be real. We can't be anything other than easygoing, entertaining, and fun. Sometimes the relationship will allow us to be deep, but not intimate. And what do I mean by that? It means maybe we talk about interesting subjects. We talk about deep things, life, love. We talk about ourselves maybe, but we never really take risks. We keep our conversations. We keep the connection in the realm of the intellect. And it's interesting, but it never gets vulnerable. Intimacy is revealing our vulnerable parts. Depth does not require this, so we can't confuse deep with intimate. Satisfying relationships are both. Unsatisfying relationships are shallow, or they can be deep, but they're not intimate. In unsatisfying relationships, we are literally in a facade. We are in our false self. We can't be authentic because we're too afraid of rejection. Now, why? We may feel afraid because we've never been authentic in our lives. We don't even know how. We may feel afraid because another person just isn't safe. They've demonstrated it. They're not available. They're very judgmental. They're reactive. Now, that lack of safety creates a less satisfying relationship, of course. In unsatisfying relationships, the relationship is imbalanced. One person has more control than the other. Now, sidebar, this paves the way for abuse. One person's voice is heard, the other's is silenced. One person makes the decisions, the other is a follower. One person acts as if every decision should center around their emotional needs and the other person caters to them. Unsatisfying relationships are disloyal. Members of the relationship aren't committed to the boundaries, the mutually agreed upon boundaries of the relationship. People become replaceable with other people, so the specialness and the unique value we all have isn't recognized and it isn't treasured. This is an important one, my friends. Unsatisfying relationships are filled with gossip. And what is gossip? It means we connect in a mean-spirited, dysfunctional way by sharing the misery of others. And the old saying is true, if they're gossiping with you, they're gossiping about you. So we ask ourselves now, how would I rate my relationships? Are they really high quality relationships? Are they satisfying? Who do I hold close and why? You know, last year at the start of COVID, a friend of mine came over and we were having drinks outside on my patio. And I'd known this person for about two or three years at this time. And I'd watched her over time. I'd watched her empathy I'd listened to her wisdom. I received counsel from her time and time again. And she could effortlessly hold my depth, keep me laughing, and give me great advice. She's funny. She's smart. She's real. She's deep. At the time, I would have considered her a really good friend. But when I looked at her that night, we were sitting outside, and I said to her, I love our friendship so much, and I'm going to be investing more into it. I want you to know I'm pulling you in close. And I was so afraid of her response. I was afraid she'd look at me like I was crazy or strange. I'm very well aware of the fact that people don't usually do this. You usually don't have a let's determine the relationship talk as friends. And I needed to let her know because it was in my heart. You're special to me, and I want to be closer to you. And I invest in my friendships with a lot of heart and a lot of energy. And when people are close to me, they know it. 
and I wanted her to know it. And I hoped, hoped, hoped it would be reciprocal. The fear here was obviously the fear of looking like a fool and being rejected. My judgment of her character, thankfully, was spot on. She turned to me with tears in her eyes and told me what I meant to her as well. And that night, our conversation and our friendship went to a new level. Now, we met in our 40s, so we didn't have the luxury of decades of time to build memories. We didn't grow up together. We feel like we did, but we didn't. She just was special. And sometimes you meet a friend later in life, and you have to be a bit more intentional than you would otherwise. So maybe some of you were thinking, gosh, Vanessa, that's kind of a lot. Friends, that is intimacy. We were capable of it. We shared a really cool moment, and our friendship took a leap forward. The bond we share now as friends is even deeper and more precious to me. And there's a lot of trust between us because we both let the vulnerable part show. And we were met with love and acceptance. We belong. We belong to each other in this friendship. This is connecting. This is walking away from an interaction with a full heart and a happy spirit. So we've talked about our connection to ourselves, to one another, as far as the quality and satisfying nature of a relationship goes. Now let's talk about how to do this in real time. Okay, how do we get and stay connected? I'm so glad we've switched the conversation from pursuing happiness to pursuing connection. Remember, connection is the process of the goal, which is happiness. So how do we do it? How do we get and stay connected? First with the self, I recommend journaling. I love journaling. You don't have to write for hours in a leather-bound journal weeping on the page. However, nothing helps me bring up and notice what I'm feeling and doing like writing in a journal. It's a powerful tool for self-awareness and connection with yourself. You don't have to do it every day. You could do it once or twice a week. You could absolutely journal every day. But just kind of circling back, looking at yourself and putting what you find, putting what you see into words. Write yourself a letter. Write a letter to a part of yourself that you don't really like too much. Tell that part of you why. Next, write another letter and have that part write you back. Write a letter to your teenage self, your child self, your infant self. If you think this sounds crazy, then listen to last week's podcast, because I know everybody who listened to it is laughing with me right now. Spend time alone. Breathe. Feel your own breath. Listen to your own breath. Listen to the voice in your gut. Then notice, begin to notice when you feel disconnected from yourself and get back to the practices that connected you. Now let's talk about connection with other people. Connection between friends is usually pretty easy. There's usually a lot in common. There may be one very significant thing in common, like parenthood or a sport or a profession. There could be lots of little things in common. And what do we do in friendship? We talk about, we compare experiences around what we have in common, what we know is important to the other. But friendships usually start with something in common. That's why we form friendships with classmates that last a lifetime, because we have so much in common. We have hometowns and teachers and friends and environments, neighborhoods, restaurants, local areas, sports teams, the rest. That's why we form these friendships. There's a lot in common. So what do we do to stay connected with friends? We need to put in the effort. Now, I know that some of you listening to this just rolled your eyes. You know who you are. You don't like to do it. You want friendships, but you don't want the work. What does this mean? It means calling, texting, checking in, making time to spend together and being supportive when it's needed. This is an investment and it's worth it. 
Remember, all the money, status, success, and stuff in the world will not bring us to happiness. Like connected, satisfying relationships will. This is a good investment of time. Now, for some of us, this is natural. This is as natural as a chicken laying an egg, okay? We're the callers, we're the pursuers, we're the coffee date setter-uppers. We're the glue. In our relationships, we're the glue. For some of us, this requires intentional effort. Why? Because we may be lazy about keeping in touch. We might be introverted. We may just be very independent. These qualities are not necessarily terrible on their own, but they do keep us from getting and staying connected. And a good, satisfying friendship is worth the effort. Now, for some of us, we don't know how important we are to people. And we don't make a whole lot of effort because we really don't think people care. And we're convinced that we don't matter all that much. And I'm going to be honest with you, this was me for a very long time. I truly did not believe people cared about me one way or the other. It was a result of trauma. It was a a result of my family dynamic. It was a result of some abuse. Now, thankfully, I don't believe that anymore, but I did. And to be honest, I hurt people. I hurt friends in my life by not showing up for them as they expected because I didn't realize how much I meant to them. And I will never make that mistake again. But for those of you listening who have felt this way, "Eh, what does it matter? Eh, I'm not going to call. She kind of had a bad day or she's going through something. But, you know, I don't really have much to say. I don't have wisdom. I don't really know what to say. Please listen to me. Your love matters. What you give matters. What you say and do for other people matters. I had to learn this the hard way. Keep giving. Keep trying. You're loved and liked and needed more than you know. So we need to check into our relationships where there's tension. That same friend I just mentioned, she and I have very, very different political beliefs. And we got into it one night, one time, and very briefly after that, we kind of checked back in. Like, okay, I love you. I totally respect you. We're just going to agree to disagree. And we moved on. And I'm going to take a moment and describe my friend group here in Nashville. This group includes people ranging in their age from 20s to 30s all the way up to their 70s with every single decade in between. And we love one another fiercely. We are gay and straight. We are Democrat and Republican. We are black and brown and white and Hispanic. We are from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. We are mothers and fathers, singles, married folks, married with kids, married without kids, step-parents, step-grandparents, and none of us feels that a political difference or any other difference would ever be a reason to withhold our love or friendship from one another and disconnect because the connection is too good. So this brings me to the binding elements of connection, trust and respect. My friends, every good relationship in life is built on trust and respect and nothing more. That's it. It doesn't matter if you've known someone for 50 years or five years. It doesn't matter if you agree on everything or nothing at all. Where there are trust and respect, there is satisfying relationship. Now let's talk about intimate partners because this gets a little trickier, doesn't it? How do we build and maintain connection with our intimate partner? We connect easily through the things we have in common, right? Just like in friendship. But how do we stay connected through disagreement and conflict? Here it is. We have to hear the heart. Folks, nearly every painful argument that results in disconnection arises from the head and the heart not meeting one another. For example, someone needs to voice a feeling and perhaps state what they need, but they make an intellectual argument instead, and this just opens the door for an intellectual war when they were really trying to communicate their heart, but they didn't have the words. 
Or someone voices an emotion, which is reaching out with the heart, and their partner meets them with intellectualization, which is the head, disconnection. Someone voices a need, which is a cry of the heart, and their partner responds with rationales for why that is or is not valid. And the head and the heart dance and dance and dance around each other, and they never meet. So there's no connection. When the heart reaches out and is met with the head, terrible disconnection occurs. If we did this the other way around, just imagine this. What if we reached out with the head, our intellect, and the heart responded? Imagine this. Do you know how to get to the Pattersons? I think we need to use the GPS. Wow, I can hear how confused and scared you are. That would be weird, right? But that's exactly what we do when our partner reaches out with feelings and we respond with thoughts. And they could be defensive thoughts or rationales or intellectualization. But we do this all the time. Somebody might say, I'm feeling lonely. I haven't seen you all week. Well, I mean, I can't imagine why you're feeling lonely. We sleep in the same bed. I see you every day. Here's a little hint. The word why. I can't imagine why. Why do you feel that way? This begs for a rationale, and it is a question of the mind. We are immediately drawing this conversation out of the heart and into the head when hearing the heart is what's needed. So here's a more connecting response. I didn't know you felt that way. I get it. You know, we've been rushing by one another a lot. What would make you feel more connected to me? I hear people say things like, I feel like I'm going insane. I feel like my world is crumbling all around me. I feel like I'm right on the edge of losing it. Can you imagine as a therapist, imagine if I responded with, well, actually, you're not displaying any symptoms of psychosis, so I would have to refute the belief that you are going insane. (laughs) Your world is actually intact. I don't see you standing on the edge of anything. That's laughable, right? But this is exactly what we do with one another when we don't let other people's emotions land. Let them land. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to totally understand where they're coming from. Just let them land. And what do we find? We find that people are 100% more willing to reason something out when their heart has been heard. And here's the secret. You have to go through the heart to get to the head. The responses of the heart are compassion, empathy, validation, and listening. Simple listening. So much conflict can be averted if people will simply listen to one another and actually take in what the other person is saying. We offer compassion, empathy, validation if needed. Then, then we go to the head. We can clear up misperceptions. We can share our thoughts. We go through the heart to reach the head. This is how we stay connected. We stay connected to one another from the heart. So what does that mean? It means we stay connected in sadness, in fear, in shame, and yes, in anger. Friends, can we please let people be mad for the love of Pete? Okay, now, look, we don't have to tolerate aggression if it's directed at us or anyone else. That's not healthy, but we have to allow feelings, and feelings include anger. Some of us just want everyone around us to be happy all the time. That creates disconnection. If you want connection, stay connected to the heart. Now, if our relationships have low to no sex, I'd venture to say there's low to no emotional connection, unless there are other physiological challenges, of course, right? Is the relationship suffering with boredom? Low to no emotional connection. Kids who won't talk to you? Low to no emotional connection. Friends, it's all about connection. We've been focused on the wrong thing. Instead of happy marriages and happy lives and happy kids and happy families, we need connected marriages. 
connected lives where we're connected to ourselves, connected relationships with friends, connected relationships with kids. If the only emotions we connect in are joy and cheer, we've got some learning to do. We need to be able to stay connected to one another through listening, compassion, validation, and empathy in every emotion under the sun. Then, disconnection doesn't rear its ugly head because nothing can disconnect us now. We're connected, and when we're connected, we're happy. Lots more to say, but I'll be back next week for sure. My friends, thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews are jumping up there, and it's really good for our ranking. And if you really like what you hear, consider writing a review. Here's how you do that. On the show page, not the episodes page, the show page, if you scroll down, you'll see the review section. There's a little link in purple that says write a review. Thank you for sharing this podcast with the people you love. It's such an honor to share this time with you every week. Thanks again for listening. And I'll be with you again in a week. Remember, your soul work, say it with me, your soul work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino Podcast.